Some years ago, um, I heard pastors talking about sitting on the fence, and they would say, you know, people who have one foot in the world and one foot in Christ are miserable people because they have too much of Christ to be happy in the world and too much of the world to be happy in Christ. And so they're this continual person that's beat up. And I spent about the first four years of my Christian walk as a beat up Christian. I was saved, but I continued to go back to the gods of Egypt. Just wanted to check one more time if they could satisfy my deepest needs. And every time I went back, I would find more conviction. Not condemnation, but conviction. I don't believe, and this is based on Romans 8.1, that there's any condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But I do believe the Holy Spirit is in the convicting business. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I couldn't be happy in my sin anymore. So every time I would try to go back to Egypt as an analogy, I would try to go back to the world, I would find this terrible ache in my soul. And God was calling me to follow him and to follow him wholeheartedly. What we really have at the core of 2 Samuel 3, and it's going to be a fairly long chapter with a, a lot of ups and downs and ugliness in it, is a question that lingers. And the question is, who is your king? Have you decided? In Israel, if you notice verse 1 of 2 Samuel 3, there was a long war between the house of Saul, 2 Samuel 3, 1, and the house of David. David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. There was a long war, a long war in the nation of Israel between the house of Saul and the house of David. And, and the war was really about who was going to be the king. Was Ishbosheth supposed to be the king? He was the surviving son of Saul. He had been put into office as a puppet king by Abner, who had been the commander of Saul's army. Or was David supposed to be the king? And the nation was divided, and the nation was at war as a result. And many Christians who have not really decided to get off the fence are in a personal war with themselves. Maybe you feel that way today. Maybe you feel like the proverbial fence sitter. I heard once somebody once say, if you want to get a real idea of what it's like to sit on the fence, picture a picket fence and you've got it. It's not the most comfortable place to be, for sure. But we all struggle, I think, with making that wholehearted commitment to Christ because it is a battle. In the book of Exodus, chapter 32, we were just studying this at the men's Bible study, the, Moses had gone up on the mountain. He was getting information about the tabernacle. The people had already received the law. And they said, everything that God says to do, we will do it. And a blood covenant was made. The blood was sprinkled on the people and so forth. And they said, we're going to do it. We're going we're to behave. We're going to follow these laws. And Moses went up on the mountain. And God was giving him measurements for the tabernacle and so forth. And Moses had been gone for a while. And the people said to Aaron, we don't know what happened to Moses. Well, they, they really did know what happened to him. He was up on the mountain spending time with God. We would assume that the presence of God, the, the fire was still on the mountain. So the people were not ignorant. But they couldn't wait. They became impatient. And they came to Aaron. They said, make us a God who we can worship and follow. And the 
account actually says that the people assembled around Aaron. And the idea of the Hebrew there is that they assembled with the idea of judgment in mind. In other words, Aaron was under some peer pressure to make them a god out of gold. The famous golden calf. So they took their earrings off, all the little ones and all the women and, and everything, and they, they gave them to Aaron. And, and the gold that had been spoils of Egypt was supposed to be used for the furniture of the tabernacle. But instead, they used it for, to make a golden calf, and it was fashioned into a golden calf. And the people began to worship this golden calf, and they began to laud it, and they began to say, this is the God who brought us out of the land of Egypt. Can you imagine being God up on Sinai? What did they just say? How many things did I show them? How many of you have had the experience where you do good to a person? Maybe you do multiple good, benevolent things for them. And the moment that you're not there at the crisis point, they're ready to trade you in. Parents can often feel this way. <laughs> right? And so he made a God. And they began to dance around this so-called God. And later in Exodus 32, when Moses comes down the mountain and confronts Aaron, it's something like this. What have you done? And Aaron came up with the lamest excuse ever recorded in the Bible, in my opinion. He said, I took the gold from the people, threw it into the fire, and poof, out popped this golden calf. It was a remarkable happening. Can you imagine that? This guy's the first high priest of Israel. And comes up with a lame excuse. We can all be that way. He was under pressure. When Stephen is before the Sanhedrin, he captures what happened when he says, write this down for your notes, Acts 7.35. He says, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. They refused to obey him. But they repudiated or rejected him. Listen to this. And in their hearts turned back to Egypt. That's Acts 7.39. Please hear what I'm about to say. In their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. The issue was not the ostensible, pragmatic side of things. The issue was one of the heart. It was easy, you could say in one sense, because of the power of God to take the people out of Egypt. Much more challenging to get Egypt out of the people. And often what happens in our hearts is we haven't truly dealt with our idols. So we've moved out of Egypt, if you will, headed towards the promises of God, into the promised land, but we haven't dealt with our core heart issues. So a problem comes up, a difficulty, a challenge. We get impatient with God, and what do we do? We go back to our old idols. We go back to Egypt into our hearts. We go back to this place of safety, forgetting that we were being whipped by the taskmaster and we were under Egyptian bondage and all of a sudden we want to turn back and we stay right there on a fence. And we become ineffective. And when Moses came down the mountain, Moses was upset because the people had broken the law of God. In 2 Samuel 3, 1 the image of a long war made me think of this very fact that the Christian life is a, is a long war. You could literally translate verse 1 as the war was long. Sometimes, man, it seems like 
some of my weeks just feel like a constant battle. Anybody out there? Can I get a witness? Some of my weeks feel like fairly smooth sailing. In fact, I've had times in my Christian life where I've said something like this. You know, things have been pretty calm lately. I'm starting to learn not to say that anymore. Because the moment I say, things have been pretty calm lately, all of a sudden a storm front blows in to my life. The Christian life is a battle. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7.23 said, I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. He said, I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, but I, I sense a different law in the members of my body. That's Romans 7, 22 and 23. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, 3, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. See, one of the things we have to learn is we don't fight this war the way we fight other wars. If you want to get in shape, you go to the gym. If you want to get in shape, you change your eating habits. If you want to get a promotion at work, you show up earlier. There's some things that cross over there, but the Christian life is, is more about submission than it is about effort per se. Everybody with me? You've got to submit in deeper ways to the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the house of Israel battled. The battle went on for years. Who's going to be the king? One king in the north, one king in the south. David was supposed to be the king of the nation. David was down in Judah. Kind of the area of Jerusalem is what we're talking about. But only the house of Judah had really anointed him. And there, was, there were people who were certainly... Uh, uh, subservient to David, but there was a challenge. There was a battle going on. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. If you look at 2 Samuel 3 for a second, something else jumped out at me in verse 1. It says, David grew steadily stronger. It is possible as a Christian to get stronger. Some of you may be wondering about that. Is it possible to overcome old habits? Many Christians are stuck in habitual sin patterns. Let's be real. It can be difficult, especially young Christians find that it's hard to get rid of the baggage of the former life. We all understand that. Those of us who have been walking with the Lord for some time. And just when we think we've overcome some areas, then sometimes they rear their ugly head. But here's the thing. It is possible to get stronger and stronger as a Christian. And there's just a kind of a, a secret to it, I guess you'd say, that's pretty basic. Here's what it is. You might want to take a note of this. If you starve your sin, starve it, and feed the Spirit, you will grow stronger. If you starve sin, it will lose its power. If you build up the things of the Spirit, you will get stronger as a Christian. Psalm 84 says, They, those who follow the Lord, go from strength to strength. Psalm 84, verse 7. You can go from strength to strength. From one degree of glory to another, if you will. You can get stronger. But the battle 
belongs ultimately to the Lord. So we put on the full armor of God that we might take our stand. And we have a battle. And the battle is hard. The Apostle Paul says, Who is weak without my being weak? 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. Who is led into sin without my intense concern? When we fight the wrong battles in our Christian life, we deplete our energies. Let me ask you, have you been sitting on the fence too long? Are you depleting all of your energy in the battle against some silly thing that you just refuse to let go? Where do you want to really spend your energies? Where do you want to spend your days? Where do you want to truly put your effort? I ask you, do you want to get off the bench and get in the game? Then we have to make a decision to follow the Lord. What we're going to find here is a struggle, a struggle over kingship, a struggle between two households. And at the center of it will be a man named Abner. We'll get to him in a moment. But as we kind of summarize what happened to David as he was in Hebron, uh, leading down there in the south, it says these words, sons were born to David, Second uh, Samuel 3, 2, at Hebron. That's where he was reigning. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second was Kiliab. He's called Daniel in 1 Chronicles 3, 1. He came to David by Abigail. Abigail was the widow of, widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, the third son born to David in Hebron was a son named Absalom. We'll learn more about him later, but he was the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Gesher. Now, there's going to be a sordid history that comes from these boys. Amnon, uh, who was David's firstborn, is not a happy story. He would end up raping his half-sister Tamar and be murdered by Tamar's full brother, Absalom. Just Ugly things happen in David's household. Absalom, whom David loved very deeply, would lead a painful rebellion against the king. And Absalom would die. Uh, he would be murdered or killed in battle, actually, by Joab, who was David's commander. So this is the son, I think, that David wanted to have him follow uh, David as king, but it didn't work out. Makkah, by the way, end of verse 3, the daughter of Talmai, was in an area where David had done a raid. If you write down 1 Samuel 27, 8, and 9, David went into this place. He slew all these people, it, it seems wrongly, and he took this daughter captive, and she became his wife. I'm sure you're all noticing that David has multiple wives, and we've said that the king was not to, supposed to multiply wives to himself. He was warned. The kings of Israel were warned not to do this. And they did it over and over and over again. So he took her as a wife. The fourth born to David was Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth was Shephatiah, the son of Apatol. The sixth and the final was Ethrium by David's wife Eglah. These were born to David at Hebron. So sons five and six, we have very little information about. After relocating his capital to Jerusalem, we'll see in chapter five, David took on even more wives. But here he has multiple wives. And I think in this, uh, this section, we have six sons born to him by six different women. So I'll just say to you, David's life was complicated. Would you agree? Now he made these decisions and look, 
Eastern kings of this time had something that we need to be familiar with as we think about the backdrop, and they had what was called harems. Now, the king of Israel was not supposed to follow the ways of the other Eastern kings, but David did do that. And people let him get away with it. And for all practical purposes, God let him get away with it. But I'm sure you've noticed in life, God will let you do many dumb things. Have you noticed? I mean, I, I experience this on a weekly basis. <laughs> right? Not every decision that I make is a wise decision. And God rarely stops me. Now, some of you say, I wish he would more. He often warns me. He prods me. I often hear that still small voice saying, Michael, don't do that again. I'm trying to learn to heed that voice. But this is the battle that we have. And so David had to learn the hard way. We're trying to spare next generations of having to learn the hard way. But it seems like every generation keeps repeating the same mistake. And it came about while there was war between the house of Saul, verse 6, and the house of David, that Abner, now he's going to be a main character as we move on, was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Abner was a man who was a classic opportunist. He was politically shrewd. In fact, the only, way, the only reason that Ishbosheth was king in the north was because Abner had put him into that spot. Abner had pushed it. And the power behind the northern kingdom, if you will, if I can put it that way, was Abner. Abner was the one that was calling the shots. Abner was the, the one that was doing the, the battling and the maneuvering. So the fact that the house of Saul was growing weaker, to me, meant Abner was growing weaker. I think Abner realized that David was the man and he was starting to lose. And Abner was all about self. Abner was a fence sitter. He liked to play both sides. He liked to be on the winning team. He was a bandwagon fan. I was watching the Little League World Series recently and they had given nicknames to a lot of the uh, players from the United States. I can't remember what the team was, but they called one of the kids on the team bandwagon. That was his nickname. And the announcer said, why do they give him the nickname Bandwagon? He says, he, he only likes the winning team. So whoever's in first place becomes his team. Now, I don't know how many of you are Bandwagon fans. I hope you're not. I hope you're faithful to your team. I hope you're faithful to the Dodgers, for example. We're going to have a war. We're going to have a church split over that. Now, I will tell you something that's happened between me and Matthew. Matthew is a Patriots fan. I? Whew, man, it's going to get heavy in the room. None of the spiritual stuff got the response, but now we're talking football, right? Now, I am a longtime Steeler fan. I have a Steeler blankie I cuddle with every night. Matthew has a yellow and black truck. It is crying out for a large Steeler sticker on the back window. I've been threatening Matthew with that, although he's been threatening me back that he's going to place little Patriot stuff in my office. So there's a long war going on within the church, and I see other jerseys, family members sitting in here today. We won't go there. <laughs> anyway, so here's Abner. 
And he is really the power behind the side of Saul, if you will, or Ishbosheth. Now Saul had a concubine, verse 7, whose name was Rizpah, part of the harem, if you will, of Saul, who has now died. She's the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Now Ishbosheth finds out that Abner has had a relationship with daddy's concubine. And he confronts Abner. And Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth, verse 8. And he said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Now, this is one of the great lines in the Bible. Am I a dog's head? I've been working on this all week. Like if I'm at dinner and somebody won't pass me the potatoes, I'm going to start using this. What am I, a dog's head? I don't know if I should be using it, but... <laughs> Now notice what he says. He says, Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David, and yet today you charge me with guilt concerning the woman. Now, do you sense a little deflection from Abner? Now the Bible doesn't say that the, the charge against him was accurate, but I don't see any reason to doubt that this is what he did. He started messing around where he didn't belong. In fact, concubines, by the way, were the sole property of the one who was inheriting the throne. The deceased king's harem belonged to the one who was claiming the kingdom or next on the throne. So writers, when you read a little bit about this, say that if you were to do this with a concubine, it wasn't just about the physical act. It was about you saying the kingdom belongs to me. What was happening basically is Abner was making a play for the throne by this activity. By disgracing Ishbosheth, by saying, I'm the real power. Your harem belongs to me. He was making a claim for the throne. So Ishbosheth confronts Abner. And Abner, of course, you know, basically brushes it aside. And here's what he says something like this After all I've done for you, man, I've propped you up. I haven't given you over to David. I've protected you. And you get mad at me for being with this woman? Wow. Do you see what he's doing? Abner is manipulating Ishbosheth. Have you ever confronted someone and all of a sudden they turn it around and you feel like you're the guilty party? And you're like, wait a minute, where do we start again on this? There's some people who are classic about turning things around. Wait a minute, hold on. Didn't Abner just do what we would call the classic blame shift by charging? He says, you charge me with guilt? You think I'm the guilty party? You are the guilty party. Now we could discuss the morals of the situation, which are a big problem, but, but Abner was guilty. I heard a story told by a pastor this week. He, was, he told a story about a woman who had, she had grown very lonely. She wanted someone to talk to. So she went to this pet store and she, she went and got a parakeet. And the parakeet, you know, could talk back to her. And that's really what she was looking for, someone to talk to, someone who would speak back to her. So she brought the parakeet home. She had it in a little cage. She began to talk to it and was hoping that it would talk back to her. And nothing for a whole week. The parakeet said nothing. So she went back to the store. She said, I don't know what's the deal with this parakeet. It won't talk. Store owner says, oh, you, got, you need to get a ladder. If you get a ladder, the bird will climb up and down the ladder and... It'll be active and it'll talk to you. So she bought the ladder, brought it home, 
Started trying to talk to the parakeet. Nothing. A whole, a whole other week goes by. She goes back to the store. The thing's not talking to me. Oh, you need to get a mirror. When it sees itself in the mirror, it, it'll, it'll be energized and it'll talk back to you. It brings the mirror home, in the, puts it in the cage. The bird's there. She's trying to talk to it. Nothing. So she goes back to the store. She says, hey, this bird's not talking to me. What should I do? Oh, here's what you need to do. You need to get a swing for the parakeet. If you get a swing for the parakeet, it'll swing back and forth. And then when you talk to it, it'll talk back to you. So she gets the swing, she got the mirror, she got the ladder. She's trying to talk to the parakeet. Nothing from the bird. All of a sudden she looks in the cage and one day the bird just falls over dead. She's like, man, I have been ripped off by this pet store. She goes back to the owner and she says, that bird not only didn't talk to me, the bird is dead. It's dead. And the owner of the store said, well, did he say anything before he died? She said, yes. He said he had some final words before he died. What did he say? He said right before he died, do they sell any food at that pet store? <laughs> Just let that settle for a second. Anyway. So now Abner starts making these grand statements. He's, he says, may God do so to Abner and more also if the Lord uh, has sworn, if, if as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish for him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul to establish the throne of David. I think this is the first mention of the throne of David, by the way, over Israel and over Judah from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. And he could no longer, Ishbosheth could no longer answer Abner a word because he was afraid of him. So basically, when confronted, Abner the fence sitter says, Okay, if you don't like what I did, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make David the king of everything. Since I'm the one that propped you up anyway, you've lost me, man. And out Abner goes to make David the king. Some of you have Abners in your life. You're frozen by fear. You won't confront the person. You won't deal with it. And so it goes on. And Ishbosheth was frozen. He was apparently <clears throat> a weak man. He didn't want to fight. And so Abner's allegiance now is going to shift to King David. He was a bandwagon type of guy. But the only reason that Ishbosheth was on the throne in the first place was because of Abner. Abner controlled him all because of fear. Now Abner, verse 12, sent messengers to David in his place and he said, Whose is the land? Make your covenant with me and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over, you, uh, over to you. So now the question, who controls the land, I think, shows Abner's true heart. He thinks he controls everything. The Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And by the way, Abner is going to fall hard at the end of this chapter. But right now he's playing both sides and he sends messengers to David. And he says, look, I'll, I'll give you the kingdom. I'll put it into your hands. And he said, David said, good, I will make a covenant with you. Should David have done that? I'll let you decide that. But I demand one thing of you, said David, namely, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal or Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. So David sent a message back and he said, I want my wife back. This was a woman that, David had gotten from Saul, Saul's daughter. And uh, 
Saul took her away from David because he hated him. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 18, 20 that she loved David. In 1 Samuel 19, 11 through 17, she lied to her father to protect David. But Saul gave her to a, a man named Palti. A lot of wives here now. A lot going on. This is David's first wife as far as I can recall. And he had lost her, but now he wanted her back. And she came from the house of Saul, so there was some symbolic stuff going on. I heard of a man who went into a store and he saw a very pretty woman. And he said to her, you look like my third wife. And she said, how many times have you been married? He said, twice. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife, Michael to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go return. So he returned. Now here's the sad scene. She's taken from this second marriage, this other marriage, and she's going to be given back to David, which... Seems like it should be correct, but the husband who is married to her now is like behind this procession, weeping, no, no, no. And I don't know how she felt. I know she loved David at one time, but I don't know. I don't know what her emotions were, but the husband's weeping, and basically he's told, go back home. And in some ways, maybe this is David claiming the, the whole kingdom since she's the, from the household of Saul. Now Abner, verse 17, had consultation with the elders of Israel. He said, in times past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. We'll see that these words really match prophecies or words given about David. That David would rule. Uh, here's my question, though. If, if, he, if Abner knew these prophecies about David, why did he put Ishbosheth as king in the north in the first place? Everybody with me? Abner was the cause of the problem. Abner played both sides of the fence, but in the end, bloodshed, war, and everything that had happened was because of Abner. Abner knew the truth, but would not follow the truth. I know that is shocking to many people. But there are many people today who know that Jesus is the king. They know that Jesus is Lord, and they will not follow him. And for a while, that's what Abner did. And now his motives are in question. Who is this guy? Is he really sincere? Now, Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. This guy's everywhere kind of being David's spokesman. And in addition, Abner went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, verse 19. All that seemed good to, uh, to Israel and all to the house of Benjamin. All this seemed good. Abner was a good salesperson. He was a traveling salesman. He went and spoke here. He spoke there to this group and that group. And Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. There's a movie, I think it's out on Netflix right now. It's about the history of McDonald's. Have you guys seen this movie? 
And what's interesting about the history of McDonald's is that the guy that became the president of McDonald's was not the original founder of the restaurant. It was two brothers. The McDonald's brothers in San Bernardino started a single restaurant, came up with a whole system of doing things, of producing what we would call fast food. And a traveling salesman, I think he was selling milkshake machines at the time, saw their operation, stopped for a cheeseburger or was trying to sell them a milkshake machine and basically stole the name and the corporation from these two brothers. That's the history of McDonald's, by the way. It's sad. The two brothers realized that they've been basically duped by this man and they made some mistakes as well. And at the end of the movie, there's people who go to the original McDonald's and take their name off the building. They can't even use their own name anymore. Wow. I don't know how many of you eat at McDonald's, but if you do, you should just repent now. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm not going to make commentary about where you should eat. But. So Abner and 20 men came with, uh, with him came to David at Hebron 20. David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Abner said to David, let me arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you, that you may be king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. From David's side, Abner was uh, a tool. And the kingdom was coming to David and that was right. That's what should have been happening. So David had a feast for him. There was peace, end of 21. Behold, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid, brought much spoil with them. Maybe uh, David had purposely sent Joab away. But Abner was not with David in Hebron. For he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king. He has sent him away and he has gone in peace. Three times, verse 21, 22, 20, uh, 21, 22, 23, he's gone in peace. He's gone in shalom. He's gone in peace. Now Joab has a little bit of revenge in his heart towards Abner. Do you remember why? Abner killed Asahel, his brother. And he had been nursing revenge in his heart. He wanted to take Abner out. So he returns from a raid and he gets word that Abner's just been feasting with the king. And not only that, but King David released Abner away in peace. Now when Abner came back, he was thinking, or when Joab came back, he was thinking, Abner's just been right here? Are you kidding me? This guy is someone I want to deal with. Well, I'll say this. Even if you've been kind of like an Abner, you can have peace with the king because he dies while we are yet sinners. He died for us. He himself is our peace, Ephesians 2.14. So the ways of the king were peaceful with Abner, but Joab was having none of it. And Joab came to the king and he said, 24, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away? And he is already gone. You know, Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive you and to learn of your going out and coming in and to find out all that you are doing. Are you that naive king? Can you imagine how this is the commander coming to talk to the king? He's basically saying, what have you done? What is your problem? Don't you know that this man's my mortal enemy? Don't you realize he came to spy you out? He's trying to pull a coup here. He wants your throne. He wants to find out your maneuverings. Don't you see it, king? He wants to see all that you're doing. 
Psalm 120 says, In my trouble I cried to the Lord, and he answered me, Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Psalm 120, verses 6 and 7 says, Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Have you ever tried to be a peacemaker in a family squabble? Sometimes you find referees in the middle of fights in baseball or hockey. I love the refs in hockey, though. The refs in hockey just stand there and let them pummel each other. Have you noticed that? Bam, bam, bam. And then as soon as they fall on the ice, then they, I think they've learned. See, all the hockey players are missing teeth anyway, so the ref figures, you know what, I'll, I'll just wait. I want to keep my teeth, right? Then they go down on the ground. This is what I used to do when my boys were younger. Let them duke it out a little bit, and then, then you get involved. Anyway. <laughs> so here's what's going on. Joab came out from David. He sent messengers after Abner, probably in the name of the king, 26. And they brought him back from the well of Syrah. But David didn't know about it. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the middle of the gate, probably just outside the city gate, because Hebron was a city of refuge, by the way, to speak with him privately. So basically, Joab sends message, a message in the name of the king. He meets him. He says, hey, come over here. Let's have a conversation in private. Takes him apparently right outside the city gate, outside the city of refuge. And then here's what happens. He struck him in the belly so that he died on, the, on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. Come here. Come into my office for a second. But Joab had a sword. And he thrust Abner through, and Abner died. Now, all the morals here of the situation and revenge and all of that, we know Asahel died in a war. This was personal vengeance. The king is not going to approve of it, but Abner lived by the sword, and he died by the sword. You know, when you have somebody like an Abner, here's what happens. If you manipulate enough situations inevitably it comes back to bite you, or in this case, to pierce you. And Abner was killed on the spot. And this guy was a great warrior. He was a commander, and he died. And afterward, David heard it. Uh, it says, when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab, 27, took him aside. He killed him, struck him in the belly, so that he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother, Joab's brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. This was not the king's way. The king's way is for peace. We know David did some stuff, but David was a man of peace. He wanted peace in his kingdom. This was not the way of the king. And so he says, may it fall on the head of Joab and all, on all his father's house. May there not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge or who is a leper or who takes hold of a distaff or who falls by the sword or who, or who lacks bread. David calls a curse down, down on Joab's house. Write down in your Bible, Deuteronomy 28, 25 through 29. These are curses that Moses had warned the children of Israel about. And now David calls a curse down on him. I wonder how many times in the kingdom of God, the Lord looks from his throne, sees what we do to one another and just says, this is not my kingdom. I wonder how many non-Christians look at the church, 
look at sometimes the infighting that happens in the church and it gives them reason to not want to join or come. And I wonder how many times from heaven the Lord says, this is not the way of my kingdom. Not to repay insult for insult, but to give a blessing instead. It's hard. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and gird on sackcloth and lament before Abner. And I think he forced Joab and uh, his brother Abishai to do the same. And King David walked behind the buyer. So now there's some sort of funeral procession that goes on. And I think that Joab is not happy about it. He doesn't want this man to have an honorable burial. How many of you have seen the movie Tombstone? Raise up your hand. It's a, it's a good cowboy western movie. But I will warn you, it's very violent. And so here's what happens. Do you remember when uh, they kill the brother of Wyatt Earp and they're going out with a coffin? And you remember some of the attitudes that were going on there? Wyatt Earp turns to the cowboys and says, I want you to know it's over. And they look at him and they say, bye. Bye. See you later. People are laying in coffins, but the attitudes were terrible. I'm sure Abner was upset. David's walking behind this funeral procession. The, the nation is in many ways war. And thus they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, who really in many ways represented the house of Saul. And all the people wept. I want you to notice the king as he leads the people even mourning somebody who had been his enemy. And the king, as we wind down, chanted a lament for Abner and said, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters as one falls before the wicked. You have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. In essence, David said, man, this, is, this was a mighty warrior. This was a, a, a good man on the battlefield. He fought hard. Maybe he wasn't a good man in the truest sense, but he was a warrior. Should he have died this way in a back alley, getting a, a knife in his stomach? Is this the way he should have gone out as a fool dies? I heard a pastor tell a story. He said one night he had a dream and he ended up in heaven. He had died in his dream and he was in heaven and God was speaking to him and the way he died in his dream, he said he returned back to his old lifestyle, which involved drugs. And he said he was back involved in drugs and drug dealing in the dream. And he died of an overdose or died somehow connected to drug dealing. And he ended up in heaven by the grace of God. And God looked at him and said, this is everything I had for you in the years that were ahead of you. If you had only obeyed me, if you had only got off the fence. The pastor said he woke up from this awful dream in cold sweat. It wasn't real. He had not returned back to his old lifestyle. He had not died in that way. But it was, it was a stark, sobering reality of what can happen if we get spiritually stupid. Saul, at the end of his life, said, I've played the fool. I've erred exceedingly. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still day 35. But David vowed, saying, May God... Do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. David fasted in light of what had happened. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them. 
Just as everything the king did pleased all the people, it was literally good in their eyes. So all the people and all Israel understood it spread all over the place far and wide that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner the son of Ner to death. Then the king said to his servants, apparently a smaller group here, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And finally, he says, and I am weak today, though anointed king. These men, uh, David had to deal with a lot of stuff from them. These family members, as strong as a leader that he was, you look at the verse for a second. He says, though anointed as king, these men, the sons of Zuriah, are too difficult for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil He's not going to do anything to these brothers in the moment. He said, he's going to leave it to the Lord. But he says, I'm weak today, though I'm the king. Have you ever had a, a day during the week or maybe you've had a week or maybe, maybe you feel it right now where you say, man, I feel weak today. Was David one of the strongest men that you could ever read about in all of history? I think so. He took on Goliath. He was mighty in battle. He was strong. But he said, because of what had happened in the nation, I am weak today. Look, it's okay if you have some days where you just say, I am weak today. Can I get a witness? That's okay to admit it, to say, I'm just not having a good day. I know all Christians often want to respond. When someone says, how you doing today? You say, praise the Lord, I'm doing great. But deep down, you may not be doing so great. David was willing to say, I'm weak today. This is not a good day. Now, one of the ways to help that is frozen yogurt. I've, I've discovered. <laughs> no, that's when we need the Lord's strength, right? But David says, I'm weak today. But here's, here's another way to translate this. David ESV translates it, I was gentle today. See, the two brothers were harsh, but I was gentle today. Now remember, David foreshadows the coming greater David, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if the ESV translates this correctly, I was gentle today, we, we know of Jesus. He is gentle and lowly in heart and in him you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, what's he say? And my burden is light. There's so many times when I go to the throne of God that I would expect that he would be harsh with me. You ever been there before? You come for the 459th time with the same issue. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. I should not. I should have guarded my mouth. I'm sorry. And you expect maybe the Lord to hammer you over the head with, you should be sorry. Let's go out to the woodshed right now. But instead, he speaks grace into your life and you're like, Lord, you're, you're so good. You're so patient. That's the stuff of the kingdom. That's really what he wants us to be with others, but we struggle with that. He says, may the Lord repay. I'm going to leave it in the Lord's hands. Father, we've tackled a long chapter here, but there's so many good lessons from your word about how we should be living this chapter ends with the king being gentle. He leaves judgment in your capable hands. Jesus, from the cross, you did not repay evil for evil or insult for insult, Peter says, but you kept entrusting yourself to him 
who judges righteously. It is so hard, Lord, for us to release our trust to you. When we've been wronged, when we've been hurt, when things haven't gone our way. And can we, can we just ask of you, Lord, to make us more like the greater David, more like Jesus. Make us stronger. And sometimes by becoming stronger, we have to, in some ways, become weaker to become stronger. We have to come to the end of our own resources. When we come to the end of ourself, it's been said that's where God begins. Help us, Father, in our areas of weakness. Help us in our areas of pride. I'm going to ask you to do a little selah time with the Lord, a little time of reflection, a little time to pause. Right now, just pause, seek his face, and ask him what he would say to you. Sanctify Christ as king in your heart, as Lord in your heart. Always be ready to give in a defense, a reason for the hope that you have. Enthrone him as king in your heart. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're not sure, God forbid, if you died tonight, you'd be in heaven. If you haven't trusted the finished work of Jesus on the cross, his triumphant resurrection from the dead on your behalf, if you haven't made him Lord and King of your life, do that today. It's something like this. Lord Jesus, come into my life. I've sinned against you and I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my pride. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for my rebellion. Lord, I put my full trust in you as my Savior and my Lord. I want to follow you. But I want to trust in your finished work on the cross. Pray it if it's you. And your resurrection for my life. I, I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Be my King. Be my friend. Lead me in the way that you would have me to go. Lord, for all of those who are opening up their hearts to receive you for the first time, maybe to rededicate their lives, maybe to get a little bit closer as a Christian, may you do the work that only you can do in our hearts, Lord. And I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand?